HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by charlottesgotalot.com. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and hosts to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread. Plan your trip at charlottesgotalot.com. This week, we are winding our way through the world's markets, both physical and financial, to find out how they're changing. We'll make our way from the Middle East to Missouri, then spend some time in the 16th century, and finish off the journey with some South African wine. I'm your host, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and you're listening to Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. Meet and Three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal. For your ears. Meet and Three. Up first, we follow Nina Medvinskaya to the streets of Jerusalem. It's 2 p.m. on a Friday in Jerusalem, and everyone's rushing to get their shopping done before Shabbat shuts down the city. I'm at the Mahan Yehuda Market, a place to avoid if you're agoraphobic, but one you'd be most pleased with if you enjoy colorful chaos. This market, or shuk in Hebrew, dates back to the late 19th century, and so has withstood decades of unrest. Yet for customers and tenders alike, the changes that Mahan Yehuda has undergone in the past few years are more substantial than any from decades before. A few years ago, something around 10 years, it was totally different. There weren't shops like this, and they like were selling from wagons, and there wasn't this rooftop. It's really changed. That was Sar. He tends cheese at a popular shop called Basher. Even though he's somewhat new to the market, like most others, he's nostalgic for the market's pre-renovated atmosphere, one with rugged flooring, no roof, and a vibe that catered more to locals than tourists. They were yelling more. So like everybody yell, hey, come here, you know, like uh, yeah, everybody yells. It was like that. Now you don't hear the yelling and the people calling you to come to try things and there is signs. Yeah, the market is changed because you have a lot of tourists in here right now and before like 10 years, you know, it's like a regular Israeli market and now it's like a tourist market. That was Joseph Katz and Gal Kahan, customer and nut tender respectively. Joseph has been going to the market since the 1950s. Today, he's solely a customer, 
But his earliest market memories are as a little boy selling greens that his grandmother purchased from local farmers. She was selling mint, nana, and uh, parsley, and kuzbara, like, like oregano. So she was buying a box, and I used to take some and go and try to sell it. For Joseph, selling greens was a way to help his struggling family make ends meet. And while today most shop owners manage multiple stalls, they still only entrust family to tender the goods. We have a family business. It's already 36 years in the market, in the shuk, and we have seven shops. So we sell spices, dry fruit, tea. That was Eliran, who, like many others, juggles managing several shops while keeping up with competing prices and ever-growing demand. It's impossible to walk even a few feet without being lured in to sample the latest halva or the meatiest olives. You have garlic, you have white pepper, you have cinnamon of reserve, you have Jerusalem seasoning, Russell Hanout for meat, you have shawarma spice, you have za'atar, you have Moroccan fish spice. Yotam, a self-proclaimed spice guy, could have gone on for well over an hour if he were to walk me through each variety of spice mix sold in his shop. To keep his shelves well-stocked, Yotam stopped producing homemade mixes and instead relies on receiving the products in bulk. We have a factory next to Nestiona. It's a city in Israel. The factory makes us the products and we sell it here in our Machneyuda market. These days, most of Mahan's tenders take advantage of factory production and many of them source their crops from abroad since certain products, quote, just don't grow as well in Israel as they do abroad, end quote. Only like almonds or something, it's in Israel, and all the rest is from all the world, like South America and Chile, Europe. If you want something in Israel, take the dates. This is the best quality from Israel, yeah. I did end up taking the dates, and Gal was right. They were unlike any I've tasted before. And while, yes, the market is no longer as rugged and wagon-fueled as before, that flavor made the old Mahan Yehuda I've heard so much about come to life. It's still in there, somewhere. Speaking of dates, did you know that Springfield, Missouri has its very own date lady? Here's Kat Johnson with the story. Yeah, so about 14 years ago, uh, my husband and I moved to the Middle East. He got a job teaching at the United Arab Emirates University. This is Colleen Sunley, also known as the Date Lady. She and her husband relocated to the Middle East about 14 years ago, just after having their first baby. So while my husband was teaching, um, we basically spent our lives in the food markets, <laughs> Henry and I. Um, because I've always just been a big foodie, and I had this tiny white pasty baby in a wrap, and we stuck out, we stuck out like a sore thumb. And the women loved us because we were always going to like the local markets, and over there dates are prolific. So anytime you go into someone's house, they offer you dates and Arabic coffee. Colleen and her family became infatuated with dates and the culture around them. So when they moved back to the U.S., there was a date-sized hole in their pantry. So we just, we were like, we're going to have to start a business just to have our own running supply. <laughs> and over the course of a year or so, we, we just played around with the concept. Dates weren't easy to source. 
Colleen first tried to get them from Egypt. And by that time, I had had my second child, and I took him with me, left the three-year-old in the UAE with dad. But after getting them in hand, there was another problem. It was an organic certified product, and I did lab testing on it just for like a third-party thing in the U.S., and we found lead in the product. Yeah, so the whole thing was complicated. That's why we ended up going with an Israeli product, which was clean and beautiful. They just never ended up having enough to supply us. Colleen finally found enough dates in California to create her first product, date syrup. We, we have produced, so we produce dates in California when we can get them. Um, but out of all of the date varieties, there are only two that we found that don't crystallize. Um, so we are now importing to keep up with demand from Tunisia because the thing is the world grows um, a prolific amount of dates, but the U.S. only grows half a percentage of those dates, so 0.5% of the world's dates. These days, from Date Lady HQ in Springfield, Missouri, Colleen has to keep a close eye on global markets and her precious cargo as it travels from Africa to America. Shipments don't always go smoothly. One time, about a year and a half ago, I think, there was a port closure in Tunisia, which was horrible. I mean, it was months, boats just setting on the water waiting to go, and they couldn't go anywhere. While the process of importing raw ingredients sounds daunting, Colleen shared some advice for anyone looking to start a similar venture. Definitely visiting those places and and forming a relationship and making sure that you're working with somebody trustworthy and actually talking to people that buy from those people. That's really important. Um, and then I would find a really good customs broker because they can walk you through everything over here, you know, and they're not hard to find. You can get a taste of Tunisia by way of Missouri by going to ilovedatelady.com and ordering your very own bottle of organic date syrup. Our market tour will continue after this short break. This episode is brought to you by charlottescottalot.com. The Queen City is a food lover's paradise and host to hundreds of incredible events throughout the year, including the International Symposium on Bread at Johnson & Wales University. HRN went to this year's symposium to learn about the science, history, and art of bread making. Here's what visitors had to say about the symposium. I love the geeky science stuff. Great food. Love yes. the Armenian pizza. How much I'm eating <laughs> and consuming the carbs. The most interesting thing is just the community. For me, it's the, the, the science of starters. So much information. Very inspiring so far because everybody has a different outlook. I'm not technically a breadhead, but I think I'm going to be one after being here. So whether you're a breadhead or just a curious mind, check out HRN on tour for coverage of Charlotte's International Symposium on Bread and an insider's look into Charlotte's food scene. Don't miss our interview with Peter Reinhardt and Kristen Moore to learn more about where to eat on your next trip to Charlotte, a city on the rise. Learn more at charlottesgotalot.com. Welcome back to Meet and 3. We hear a lot today about globalization, but international trade began long before the 21st century. Aaliyah Papes brings us a story about British imperialism and a food that changed the global market forever. 
Historian and writer Lizzie Collingham's book, Taste of Empire, tells the story of 20 different dishes. She uses those stories to track how the British Empire's quest for certain foods shaped our world. Collingham talked about the book with host Kathy Irway on Food Talks in 2017. The book begins in the 16th century with a humble fish. Well, a lot of us think of, you know, the British Empire trading mostly like the raison d'etre of it being, you know, things like spices and sugar and silk. But you write that it actually began with salt cod from Newfoundland, <laughs> which doesn't sound quite as exciting to me. No, no. In fact, that's why I started off, because it isn't exciting. I mean, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the quest for, for spices and the journey to India and all of those sort of things, that's all very exciting in this sort of foreign land you encounter. But actually, the basis for this was laid down by those West Country fishermen who started mm-hmm. going to, across the Atlantic on a regular basis. So they'd go in the spring, uh, set up fishing stations on the coast of Newfoundland, fish cod all summer, dry it and cure it with salt and Mm -hmm. bring it back. The cod wasn't that exciting to the British sailors at first, but then it proved to be very useful. People describe when they first arrived there that you couldn't actually row through the cod. The sea was so thick with cod, you couldn't very easily move forward in your own. And so, you know, it obviously was a, 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 a huge resource and cod was very, very good for, because it was dry, you mm-hmm. could keep it, you could feed it to sailors, you could feed it to the soldiers, uh, especially the military forces, the Tudor forces who were putting down the rebellions in Ireland were fed on salt cod. And so salt cod became an incredibly useful military food. And also the Mediterranean people, they, they absolutely loved cod. So you oh, could yeah. exchange your cod Bacala. for wine. And the British wanted to drink the wine and the huh. olive oil. And so they found this medium for exchanging. So you found this Newfoundland cod trade set up all kinds of things. It taught them how it, it, it created this fund of people who knew how to navigate the seas and for whom it was quite normal to sail across the Atlantic. It was kind of a scary thing to do at that time. And then it also created this sense that that was a good way to trade, that you got some goods, but you could exchange them for other goods, and it became a network rather than just a two-way exchange. The cod in Newfoundland helped lay some of the first threads of the trade web that would define the British Empire. To get the whole picture, pick up Lizzie Collingham's book, The Taste of Empire, How Britain's Quest for Food Shaped the Modern World. Another force is reshaping global markets as we speak, climate change. In our next story, Oscar Simone takes us into the vineyards of South Africa to see how weather and wildfires are affecting their crop. When it comes to climate change, every facet of agriculture will be, or already has been, affected. You might be surprised to learn that one of the most vulnerable industries is wine. Temperature, humidity, and rainfall all have profound effects on the taste as well as the acid and sugar content of grapes. For hundreds of years, vineyards and winemakers have worked to find the right variety of grapes and the right places to grow them. But now, with the climate looking less predictable and growing conditions more volatile, It seems that we have likely passed a watershed moment of maximum quality. Yet a more immediate problem is the way the tangible effects of global climate change have been affecting vineyards right now. South Africa's southwestern Cape has become one of the fastest growing wine producing regions in recent years. Nielsen data from last July had the average price of a South African wine for imports, it was the third highest 
after France and New Zealand. So um, that's you know pretty pretty pleasing, and that's why a lot of producers would like to make more inroads here in the U.S. market. Jim Clark is the marketing manager for Wines of South Africa. And while he's proud of the growth, it hasn't all been smooth in recent years for South African wines. Between 2015 and 2017, they experienced three of their lowest rainfall years on record, and that seriously stunted production. So the drought technically was over as of the end after the, the 2018 vintage. However, the effects have still lingered. The big problem, first of all, with the drought was uh, lowering yields. So areas that required or um, relied on irrigation to kind of build up their, uh, the volume in the vineyards weren't getting the water from the, the civic supply and things like that. From the river was, you know, it's shared between uh, the population and agriculture. So they maybe got um, 40% of the normal offerings, which brought yields down. Depending on the region, uh, 20% would be typical, but some places saw much less. And then even areas where the farmers might have their own reservoirs or wells um, had problems as well, or if they're dry farming. So it, overall, yields dropped, I think, over about 10, 15 percent, kind of on average of the past few years. Here in the States, it's not just the droughts causing problems, but what happens next. For the past couple of years, the U.S.'s West Coast has experienced an unprecedented amount of damage from wildfires. While many vineyards have lost infrastructure and others have lost vines, some of the worst damage isn't actually caused by the flames. It was only in sort of really, like, dense areas, areas um, where there's vineyard and lots of other stuff where the vineyard actually did burn. But in a lot of places, they've still been irrigated, and um, the vines just don't, don't burn particularly well. And so the fire just found a different path. That was Jeff Mosier, the executive chef at Mondavi Winery, who we spoke to after the fires in October of 2017. For Mandavi and the other wineries that escaped being destroyed, the fires presented other issues. Here's Doug Marjoram of Marjoram Wine Company, who spoke with Todd Shulkin back in early 2018. And there's, a, there's an actual smoke taint that happens when ash and smoke uh, goes on grapes that are about to be picked to make wine on. Um, so it, it, it almost manifests itself to almost smelling like a, you know, when you have an old, uh, old fire pit, it has that sort of charcoal uh, smell to it. It's not good for wine. Luckily, at the time, many of the vineyards had already harvested a good amount of their crop. Yet, even with having survived the fires, actually being able to sell the products presented new issues. The impact to businesses were strong during the fire and during after the flood when the highway was closed. You know, businesses were closed for, for months. And for me, you know, I sell a lot of wine to the local restaurants and those restaurants were closed. And our, you know, our sales just went to zero. When a disaster like this hits, it's easy for us to point at something like climate change and not face the fact that wildfires happen and nature is unpredictable. But at the same time, this really does look like an effect of our changing climate. HRN covered the wildfires back in the fall of 2017. Here's some of Hannah and Kat's reporting. So Scott L. Stevens, who is a professor of fire science at the University of California, Berkeley, is quoted in the article and he says that it's important to note that climate change is not necessarily causing these specific fires to occur. Um, wildfires are a natural part of a forest life cycle. 
However, fire seasons in general have grown longer and more destructive in recent decades, something that scientists do attribute in part to increased dryness caused by warming temperatures. A study published by the University of Idaho and Columbia University last year showed that climate change has caused more than half of the dryness uh, in Western forests since 1979. So while climate change isn't the sole cause of these increased wildfires, there is a clear connection. The warming temperatures cause droughts, and the lack of water makes it easier for fires to ravage the land and damage industry and destroy people's homes and communities. And while wildfire experts predict the forthcoming fire season to be just as destructive, it's a Californian winemaker who will be directly affected by these fires that reminds us what our big picture priorities really need to be. I just want to read this quote directly from Robert Sinski. He emailed me and said, that we need to focus on climate change and educate people to vote the environment. It needs to be the number one issue for all eligible voting citizens. The world has bigger problems than just the wine industry and these fires. We need intelligent, savvy politicians who will make climate change their top priority, and we need to put others on notice that the world has moved beyond fossil fuel and chemical farming. I have said for years that vineyards are the canary in the coal mine. What we are experiencing now is what's in store for the rest of the world if we don't move on from this carbon-based economy. That's our show. Special thanks this week to Oscar Simone, Nina Medvinskaya, and H. Conley for their reporting. Meet and Three is produced by Hannah Forden, Kat Johnson, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our lead producer this week was Aaliyah Papes. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and Three is a production of Heritage Radio Network the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetn3.nyc. That's all spelled out.